This morning we are in uh, the first letter of Peter. First Peter. And I trust that we'll, we'll be in this letter uh, for the next uh, several weeks. Our aim is to anchor our soul in this uh, portion of Scripture. Uh, and we're not here on a whim. It's a wonderful letter. And we have, uh, it was so wonderful. God had Peter write another one. So we have two letters from Peter uh, written there in the first century uh, to, to some folks. We'll look at that in a moment. Um, but this, uh, this, this letter has no doubt a lot to, to say to us in our current uh, time frame. And I trust that we'll be built up on the Word of God and that we'll be uh, much better for it. If you have a map in your Bible, I don't often ask you to turn to the maps, and some Bibles have maps and some don't. The map I'm looking for, it's the last map in my Bible. And if you will look at that, usually... Uh, Paul's first, second, and third missionary journeys there. The people that Peter writes to are located on the, really on the fringes of the known world. If you look on my map, it's just right there almost at the top of the page. Bithynia and Pontus. You see that? North, you've got Galatia coming southeast, Cappadocia there, and then all that, all that area east, that's Asia Minor, that's uh, modern day Turkey. Peter's writing to folks who lived in these areas. So, He's writing to people who are on the, on the fringe. I mean, they're out there. A lot of Paul's journeys take place around the Mediterranean. You, know, you have Jerusalem way down south. Um, so the people Peter writes to are located in Asia Minor in these five provinces. And... Um, he has something to say to them, to encourage them. So we're done with the maps for now. And we're back with First uh, Peter chapter 1, and we'll look at verses 1 and 2 today. Let's read uh, these verses. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered... Throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen 
according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. What a powerful introduction uh, we have here in Peter's first letter. Let's pray and then we'll, we'll break it down. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word written centuries ago, continues to inform us, instruct us, encourage us, even warn us. And so we thank you for all that went into this writing, all that was invested in the apostle, and all the work that you performed in those precious people living on the outskirts of things. And so, Lord, I pray through this word that you'd reach our hearts, that you'd give us some understanding as to your ways and that you would comfort us. And so, Lord, uh, thank you. We ask your blessing on each one here. And, Lord, give us, give us ears to hear. And, Lord, give us the ability this morning to speak. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, there's several questions that arise. I want to just, for introductory purposes... As we look at these, uh, this text, uh, first we want to we notice the, the the sender, the writer of the letter, the author Peter, and how he's identified as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so we think back on what we know of the apostle Peter. We uh, we know he was a pretty outspoken man. He was a fisherman. We know that in every list of the apostles, he's first. You have Matthew 10, you have Mark, I think it's chapter 3, Luke 6, and Acts chapter 1. In every list, Peter is listed first. So he was a leader among men. Uh, he was quick to speak. Many times slow to hear. He's up and down and all around. One moment, the Lord's bragging on him. And next moment, there's a rebuke. All kinds of things. If you'll remember, we can, we can look at a few scriptures just to uh, think about some of his history with Jesus. If you go back to John chapter 1, pretty significant time there in verses 41 and 42, John 1, we're thinking about Peter, 
And we could ask the question, you know, how does he, I mean, how does he merit writing a significant letter, let alone two letters? I mean, he's, he's all, over the, all over the place during Jesus' time on earth. John 1, 41 and 42. This is the account of when the apostles or when these disciples were first called. He found his own brother. The he there is Andrew. He found his own brother, Simon. And said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. It's interesting. Jesus gives Peter his name. And then Interestingly enough, throughout the book of John, I think it's some 17 times, Peter is referred to as Simon Peter. Simon Peter. It's almost like uh, John doesn't know whether to settle on Simon or Peter, so he just includes them both together. Peter brings that much to the table. Are we going to get the best of Peter here? Are we going to get old Simon? And then at the, well, John 6. Let's go there. It's, this is helpful. John chapter 6 and over there. Yeah, verse 66 and down to 68. As a result of this, many... Of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. This is John six sixty six, and uh, many of the disciples, John tells us here, are leaving Jesus. They withdrew. They're not walking with him, Jesus, anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, "You do not want to go away, also, do you?" And Simon Peter answered him, "Lord, to whom shall we go?" You have the words of eternal life. Another uh, wonderful uh, time for Peter is over in uh, Matthew 16, where Jesus is asking the disciples, who do men say that I am? And we have Peter's confession of, of Christ. Verse 15 he, asked the, he begins by asking the disciples, who do men say that I am? And men are saying all kinds of things. There, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And then Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, but who do you say that I am? No surprise here, Simon Peter answers. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who's in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter. And Peter means rock. It means little stone. You are Peter. And upon this rock, two different words there. One, Peter's name means small stone upon this rock, on this slab of rock. 
based on this revelation, he says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Well, before we, before we leave here, let's go one more, one more place. Very interesting. Luke 22, Luke chapter 22. The exact verse escapes me for now, but <laughs> unfortunately, there's 71 verses in 22. Let's see if I can find it quickly. Well, Jesus looks at, at Peter and he, sa- he refers to him this way. He says, Simon, Simon. Double, right? Doubles down on Simon. It's somewhere there. Some of you, very few will want to read. 31? Okay, thank you for that. Appreciate it. Preacher needs some help. Simon, Simon, there it is. Behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But he said to him, Lord, with you, I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today unless until you have denied three times that you know me. And then over in John, and we'll, we'll have to touch on this one, John, the last chapter there. Peter is restored to the Lord. This is following the resurrection of Jesus and beginning in verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again, a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. And then when we get to the book of Acts, who is it that's speaking? Who is it that's standing? Who is it that's preaching on the day of Pentecost? It's the apostle Peter right here in Peter's first letter in this introductory portion of the letter. We have Peter identifying himself as the author of the letter. He says that he is Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ. So this letter bears the full weight of his apostolic authority. And this letter is binding on the church. And in this letter, he has a lot to say Not only to those then on the outskirts of the known world, but he has a lot to say uh, to us in our 
day and time. Notice he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He walked with Jesus. He talked with Jesus. He was corrected by Jesus. And Jesus continued to lead him, continued to teach him and instruct him. And Peter becomes a most eminent apostle. And this, uh, this letter bears his name. And we know that these apostles were moved by the Holy Spirit to write. And we have Peter's writing here. There are the doubters of Petrine authorship. We're not going to go into all the doubters. I'm not a doubter. Peter said that he wrote it. He identifies himself as an apostle. And I believe that uh, this letter is authentic, that we have Peter's writing here. He, um, he then names the recipients. Um, the question that we would want to answer here is, how do we understand those folks back then as aliens? Notice he says to those. So these are the, the people that are going to receive the letter. So these are the people that Peter is thinking about when he writes the letter. To those who reside as aliens. What, is that, what does that mean? What does it mean in that context that he's writing to these folks who are living in Asia Minor and he says they reside as aliens. And then he uses the word diaspora, which means scattered. He identifies them as not only aliens or foreigners, but he says you're scattered and you're scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So it's interesting, he's not writing to a specific church. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, or the church at Philippi, or the church at Colossae. Peter, this is, we call this a general epistle, because Peter is writing it generally to Christians in Asia Minor, not to a specific uh, church that is named. So how do we understand that? Then we go down to verse 2. He says, Who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father? Another question would be, What is that? What does the word foreknowledge mean? Does foreknowledge just mean that God, uh, God knows what's going to happen? Or is there more to it than that? We'll answer that. Then he says, he says these people are chosen or elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Then he says, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Some translations say, May grace and peace be, be multiplied to you. Both are accurate, fullest measure. The root word there is pleroma, and that always means just to the fullest, to the max. And so Peter wishes grace and peace 
or pronounces, I should say, grace and peace on these precious people, but not just everyday average grace and peace. This is to be multiplied, to be theirs in the fullest measure. So how are we to understand the multiplication of grace and peace? We define grace as God's riches at Christ's expense. We think about peace as man being reconciled to God through Jesus. But what does it mean that that's multiplied? So as we, uh, as we look at these couple verses this morning, I'd like to answer those questions. And at the conclusion, I would like to uh, multiply or make an attempt at least to multiply the grace and peace to you this morning. Um, Why would he say that? Why would he, why would he say grace and peace be multiplied? I'm going to, I'm going to say it this way. They needed it. And now I want you to listen real, really carefully. You need it as well. You know, the, the days of, of, uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to show my age a little bit. You know, as well, I show it a lot, but I'm going to really, I'm going to articulate it better. So um, back in the day, there were these commercials for hair. Why would I bring that up? I don't know. And, and they had this product called Brill Cream. And the little, the little phrase they would use is a little dab will do you. Unfortunately, Christians that I know or professing Christians I know bought into that and somehow think that a little dab will do you. And I'm here to tell you, a little dab won't do you. You need grace and peace multiplied to you. And that's one of the reasons we're in this letter. Um. So before I go too far, let's, uh, let's look right there. We've dealt with the author, Peter. There's a lot more that could be said. I mean, Peter takes up a lot of the Gospels. We could, we could chronicle his life. We're not going to go through all that. To those, here it is, who reside as aliens... The word there is not used very much in the scriptures at all. It's used maybe once or twice in the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek Old Testament. You find it over in Genesis 23, 4. Abraham's looking for a place to bury Sarah. And he's in foreign territory. And he's talking with the people. And he says, we're, we're sojourners. We're, we're, we're pilgrims here. I need a place. Um, the word is aliens. Back then in the first century, the word means non-citizen. Non-citizen. So someone who lives in a place, in this case, Asia Minor, and they live there or reside there as non-citizens, as foreigners. It's interesting. And so the question is, 
You know, who were these people? Where did they come from? There, there are believers in the, in the very far reaches of Asia Minor. Where did they, how did they get there? There's, there's a couple answers to this. The first one is that they could have, they could have been those that were converted on the day of Pentecost. Peter preached the sermon, the people are converted, and then, what, they're in Jerusalem for the festival, then they go home. Now, they came to Jerusalem at quite a distance, but they go back and they take their Christianity with them and they share Christ with others. It still doesn't really tell us why they would be considered non-citizens. They go, they go home. That's one possibility. Another possibility is that back in the first century, the Roman emperors started a colonization program. Yeah, they would, uh, they would take uh, a group of people out of Rome, troublemakers, perhaps, and they'd send them east in order to colonize. We've, uh, we've been studying Acts on Wednesday night. Remember uh, Pisidian Antioch. That was a Roman colony. So these emperors would just, uh, and believe me, by mid-century, they were not very appreciative of the Christians. I mean, history has it that Nero blamed the Christians for the fire in Rome. Nero wasn't... He was a Roman emperor and he wasn't friendly toward Christians. You can see where an emperor might use his power to displace Christians in and around Rome and send them east. That could happen. Uh, also a scenario that I, that I thought about and it's probably worth considering is when the emperor, when Rome wanted to recolonize in the east, I wonder if those who lived there would lose their citizenship from wherever they lived. They were, they were taken over by Rome, but they were not Roman citizens. wonder if that could be a possibility. Well, at any rate, these people are aliens they're considered foreigners. They're scattered. Uh, I read somewhere there's like uh, in that area. It's about the size of Pennsylvania, Ohio, New York. It's a vast area. 130,000 square miles. So it's spread out. These people. So there they are. Um, Rome wanted to recolonize. They would uh, do that for three reasons. Culture, military, and trade. And the people would find themselves feeling like an outcast or a foreigner. They would feel like they were in exile. They wouldn't recognize all the Roman customs and all the Roman 
gods and their way of government. And so with all that in mind, Peter's writing. These people are living in Asia Minor and they're scattered and they're living like foreigners. Then he says, who are chosen. The word there is the word elect. They are elect. So when he's writing, Peter is writing to these folks and he reveals their status as to the world. How do they relate to the world? How do they navigate living as foreigners? And then here he reveals their status as believers. And Peter says they're elect. And then we have three prepositional phrase that describe those who are elect. Beginning in verse 2. He says, they're elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father. So the first person of the Trinity, God the Father. Peter says, these people are elect and they're elect according to the Father's foreknowledge. Does this mean that God just knew, just knows who will receive him and follow him? Or is there more to it than that? So as we dig down deep into the word and the meaning of the word and how it's used, we find out that there's more to it than that. Yes, God knows. But here, right in the middle of the word, the word know has the roots going all the way back to the Old Testament and know is a is a it's a term of the covenant. And anytime we think covenant, we think God wants a relationship with people. And that relationship God initiates with people. Man doesn't initiate a relationship with God. God initiates a relationship with man. That's the way it works. And so we are chosen by God according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So it's his foreknowledge. And this no means, if we take it a step further, in in that uh, framework of the covenant, We find out that no means to love. No means to love. So in a covenant, God sets his affection on people. He loves. So whenever you see this term, don't just think God's just up there and he's, he is the only wise God and he just kind of knows how everything's going to play out for us down here on earth. No, there's more to it than that. The Bible says that we are chosen 
these believers then and now according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And so there's love right in the middle of that word. I thought of this, that uh, could you say that God foreknowledged us? Okay, well, I thought it was better than that, but um, I I would use that term, that he foreknowledged us, um, that he set his affection on us. Uh, You could use the word foreordained us. Or predestined us. And then about this time, somebody starts sweating bullets. Are you saying God really knows? Yes, I'm saying God really knows. Are you saying God really chooses? Well, yes, I'm saying it because Peter said it. He knows and he chooses. And, and, and never take those terms away from the term covenant and the term love. Why would he choose? Well, because of the covenant and because of his love. Uh, There's a wonderful passage over in Acts 2, 23. Acts 2, 23. Peter is, is preaching. And he's talking about Jesus there in verse 23. And he says, this man, this is a reference to Jesus Christ. And Peter says, he's preaching in front of all these, all these people on the day of Pentecost. And he says, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. What's the same word? For knowledge of God. And this is used in reference to God's only son. And it's obvious here that God planned this operation. And he planned it out of his great love. Not only for you and me, but for his only son. I'm just, all I'm trying to say is this. Sometimes we start talking about God's foreknowledge. As it relates to the believer, we get nervous, but the bottom line is we have that with regard to God and his love for his own son. And it means the same thing. It's the same word. So according to the foreknowledge of God, the father, by the way, Peter states this as an encouragement and you'll see it here in a little bit. Then he says, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Okay, so we're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and we're chosen by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And then the third prepositional phrase here is, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Okay, so there are three prepositional phrases that define the elect. And if you're a believer, you have to think you're part of the elect, that you've been chosen. Isn't that, that's, what a thought. I mean, you could ask the question, how do I know I've been chosen by God? How do I know I'm part of that plan? Do you believe? Do you want to believe? 
Believe. You're part of the plan. So, these phrases here, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. This is the work of the Spirit. When is it? You know, a lot of times we use the word sanctification. We're talking about progressive sanctification. We grow in the likeness of Jesus. But not here. Not here. Here, we have, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, we have something that's taking place when someone is born again. Set apart by the Spirit. There's a couple of uh, good references here. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2. 1 Corinthians is really good for this because these folks, uh, by and large, at Corinth were lagging in sanctification or progressive sanctification. But it is interesting that in the second verse of chapter 1, when Paul is identifying these folks as recipients of this letter, he says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. That just means they have been set apart. They were born again. They're believers. But at the time they were born again, they were sanctified. We have the same, we have the same word used. Where is that? This is a, there it is. There it is in verse 30, same chapter, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So that was the second phrase. And that modifies who are chosen, the elect. The elect are known by God, loved by God, chosen by God. The elect are set apart by the work of the Holy Spirit. And then lastly, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. What does that mean? Well, it means to obey Jesus Christ as to saving faith. Romans. Romans chapter 10, we see the Bible writers at times refer to saving faith as to be obedient to the faith. Here, this is verses 14 through 16 of Romans chapter 10. I think it is helpful to take a little more time this morning and, and look at this just so we make the point and it's, it's beautiful. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, Paul says... They did not all heed the good news. What does that mean? He's just saying there are people that hear the good news. They hear about the grace of God 
demonstrated in Christ's death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection from the dead. But they don't believe it. They don't obey it. They don't obey it to the believing of it. Romans 16. Romans 16. Second to last verse in the book of Romans, verse 26. But now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. That is a reference to obeying Jesus as to the reception of the gospel, the believing of the good news, the obedience of faith. So what we have in 1 Peter, in that second verse of chapter 1, those three phrases that modify those who are chosen, the elect, all of those refer, those refer to our conversion. Our conversion. Oh, there's more to it. To obey Jesus Christ, to come to the obedience of faith, and be sprinkled with his blood. Now, in the Old Testament, lepers were sprinkled with the blood. Uh, priests were sprinkled with the blood. But one, one part, there's Exodus 24, on Mount Sinai. When the Ten Commandments were given, there was a sprinkling of the blood. We think that's a reference. We go back to that. But what does it mean to be sprinkled with his blood? Listen, how many of you know this morning that the blood of Jesus was shed on the cross? It was shed. He bled on the cross and died on the cross. Well, unless you by faith apply the blood... There's no salvation. You have to apply the blood by faith. That's what it means to be saved. And this sprinkling of the blood is the application of the blood of Christ to our lives, to salvation. Right there it is. We are chosen, we're elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Wow. I mean, that is such a comforting Statement. You mean with all my ups and downs, with all my sin, with all my weakness, God chose me? God foreknowledged me? I'm going to keep coming back to that word. I'm sorry. God foreknowledged me? You mean that nothing happens by accident? Yeah, that's, that's what we mean. Foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. That means that he loves you uh, enough to choose you and he loves you enough to separate you from the world. You and I don't live like the world lives. We don't value the things of the world. We value spiritual things. We value Christ. We value his word. We value his spirit. We value the truth. These are the things we value. The world values what it values, but we're set apart. That's the point. And we are, we are set apart to obey Jesus in receiving him and to be sprinkled with his blood, the blood of Jesus applied 
to me, to my heart, to my life for the forgiveness of sins. And then he says, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Now, these people are, they are on the outskirts of things. They're being persecuted. They don't live like others. They're not expected. Listen, where they lived, the people didn't expect them to be like them. They had different values and they were looked at as they were, they were weird or strange. And they were persecuted. And that's why Peter says, grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. So I want to I close like this. I want to multiply grace to you. So we'll do it this way. First, electing grace. Electing grace. Do you have anything to do with that? No, he just chose you. Pick me, pick me. No, that wasn't happening. The truth is we're running from God. Electing grace. That means apart from any merit I bring to the table, God shows me according to his foreknowledge. Okay, we're going to multiply it. Redeeming grace. Jesus died on the cross for you. And shed his blood for you. Anybody? He asked your permission to do that for you? No. We, we, it's just grace. It's grace. Electing grace. Redeeming grace. Let's go again. Our regeneration grace. Born again. How did Jesus, what did Jesus tell Nicodemus about being born again? He said, well, the wind blows where it wills. You hear the sound of it, but you can't see it. Have you believed in Jesus? If you have believed in Jesus, you've been born again. Anybody make themselves do that? No, you heard the gospel, you believed. It's it's the grace to be born again. That I heard the gospel. That I heard it and believed. Well, what's so different about that? What's so unique about that? Well, I can tell you right now, uh, most people don't have that knowledge. If you want to go out here and take a survey, fine. Have a big time. Most people do not have that knowledge. So we have electing grace, we have redeeming grace, we have regenerational grace. We have... uh, Oh, we have persevering grace. Why, Why do you still believe? Because Jesus gives us grace to persevere. I mean, do you, you think we just muster all that strength on our own? Going to gut it out one more day for Jesus? No, he gives us persevering grace. And what that means is I have grace to persevere on what man would consider 
your best day and I have grace to persevere on the worst day that could ever happen. Persevering grace. I mean, you don't think we work up all this on our own, do you? No. Grace be multiplied to you. And what does that do? Well, it makes me so thankful. I mean, so thankful. I mean, remember the old, remember the old Chris Christopherson song? Why me, Lord? Because he wanted to choose you according to his foreknowledge by the sanctifying work of the spirit to obey Jesus and be sprinkled with his blood. And with all that said, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And going forward, he's going to talk about how to live in this old world, how to how to have a how how to have a solid marriage and a wonderful home, how to how to uh, how to operate within the the church of the Lord. He's going to talk about all that. And we're going to cover it in due time. Father in heaven. The riches of your grace. We thank you. Lord, I pray that you would heap grace and peace on each one here, on the children who are learning in their classes. And that we would learn, oh God, that regardless of how difficult things become on earth, your grace is sufficient for us. We give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.